Welcome into the NHL at the Rink podcast. As always, Dan Rosen here and Sean Rourke, my esteemed co-host out there. Sean, Vegas and Dallas are tied 1-1. We're recording this Wednesday morning. Tampa Bay is up 1-0 on the New York Islanders. Four teams left. Conference final all in Edmonton. Hockey every night still. You doing good? Not as good as you, man. You are fired up. I am fired up today. I really am. I, I am. I am working on about five hours of sleep, too. Well, that's more than enough in the playoffs. Hey, before, <laughs> before we get started with all the news that's happened, little news of our own. 50 podcasts today. This is, I know, this is our 50th podcast. Well, let, let's clarify. I think it's my it's your 50th, 50th podcast, right? I think it's about your 45th. But I got to tell you, the last 44 have been way better than the first five. Let's put it that way. And that's all you, man. That's all you. I know. <laughs> you know, so humble. So humble, right? So, no, I'm working on a, about five hours of sleep here. Um, yeah, all right. I'm going to put this out there because our producer just sent us a little note, Bob Bender. Best thing we did was bring in Sean. Yes, 100%. Best thing we did was bring in Sean, mainly because I couldn't handle it on my own. All right? So that's, that's why it was the best thing. But as I said, working on about five hours of sleep, did the Vegas-Dallas game uh, last night, Tuesday night. And the series is 1-1 right now. I'm not surprised it's 1-1. I guess I'm a little bit surprised at how it's gotten to 1-1. Dallas hasn't scored in the last 117 minutes and 24 seconds. They scored on their first shot in game one, 48 shots since, no goals. Uh, Vegas has not been actually dynamic offensively, but, you know, it was enough in, in the second period in game two. They scored the three, almost had the fourth one, too. It was called back on a goalie interference. Are you surprised at all this, this series has gone the way it has? No, not at all. Look, I think we're back to the Dallas that is Dallas that we knew from the regular season, a really, you know, low scoring conservative. Remember when we started these playoffs, yeah. we're like, how are Dallas going to score goals to get by? And then all of a sudden they run into the Colorado avalanche and they turn into, you know, this running gun, eight goals a game between the two teams, super exciting hockey. You know, you see that game seven, five, four um, final and overtime, like, and you're like, wow the stars have really turned a leaf. And I think they had to do that to play against Colorado. I don't think they could stay in the shell and, and rope-a-dope them. I think they would have been in a ton of trouble. Um, but, you know, now it seems like they've settled back into, because of the way that Vegas plays, which is a little bit more methodical, they've settled back into kind of their conservative shell. And then, you know, you see a Vegas team who had a ton of trouble with Thatcher Demko when he came in against Vancouver. And it, that would have been one of the most amazing upsets in the history of hockey. You know, yeah. when you look at a goalie and what he did, I mean, Thatcher Demko was ridiculous. Even in, you know, losing game seven, he had them so frustrated um, that I think there was a hangover, right? Not only physically, but mentally. I, I, I honestly believe, and I know some people will argue against this and, and the players themselves will, but I, I believe that Thatcher Demko was in their heads and that they were so fine and trying to beat him that when they got into game one, they were hesitant to shoot. They didn't know if holes were going to be open against Hudobin. And it took them a while mentally to get to where they got to in game two and, and started to show their true colors again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, that game seven was incredible. Demko, the, the story of Demko was, was remarkable. And you almost, because of that, wanted to see him move on. But Vegas was the better team. There was no question about it. He was the better. He was great for the Canucks. But there's no question Vegas was the better team. But you brought up Dallas. And I don't like it. 
All right. I, I watched that whole series. I covered that whole series against Colorado and I could see that the stars could play a little bit more running gun, right? They, they could, they had to, like you said, against Colorado because of the nature of the way Colorado plays, but Dallas could do it. Now they've reverted completely back into the hockey that they were playing in the regular season. And Rick bonus has talked about it many times when they came to training camp in July, his goal was to get more offense, to get the defense more involved, to generate more offense. When you do that, you are going to give up a little bit more, but they, they can find a balance. I think that, you know, between what they did against Colorado and now what they've done in two games against Vegas, they've got to be able to find that balance. They've been too slow. I think, uh, especially in game two against Vegas, almost giving up uh, the opportunity, you know, some rush opportunities because they were a little too slow. And I think they can do a little bit more. I could, they can play with more speed. They can activate their D more and not be so concerned. It's not like Vegas is not Colorado. Vegas doesn't have that type of quick strike ability the way that Colorado has right with that type of speed and that type of skill Vegas is a heavy team that wears on you that leans on you that four checks like crazy against you but I think Dallas has to find a way to generate more th- with their speed and just push it a little bit more even if you're sacrificing a little bit on the other end I think they they're too much of a shell right now well I also think that some of it is just residue from that Colorado series look both teams you worried about in game one with the quick turnaround they both played game seven on the same day which was a fantastic day of hockey <laughs> you know an afternoon elimination where else game. are you gonna get that right I know I mean, it, it it was unbelievable but you know I think both teams and you saw it with the Islanders right in game one of their series after Tampa Bay had seven days off and the Islanders had one and you know they get waxed eight to two um I, I think Dallas is emotional letdown came later right they they win game one score on the first goal and then really shut it down I mean they limited you know Vegas to less than 20 shots and and a lot of those were in the third period and I think you know they just became complacent right they saw that they could do it they they were worn out a little bit from all the emotion and all the look I think they paid a huge physical price when you think about what happened to Colorado in that series and how many players were hurt for them like, that's not a one-sided thing. I, I think the Stars got beat up pretty good, too. And there's some guys on that Colorado team that can, you know, do some damage. So I, I, I just think that they escaped that first game and they thought maybe they could do it again, and they didn't. And that's the wake-up call. And I, I think if you look at this series for both those teams, they both reacted so well to losses that, you know, you'll see a completely different game in Game 3 tomorrow. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, by the way, you bring up the Islanders. We should bring up our guests. Um, let's tease them before we move on because we'll talk a lot of Islanders and Tampa Bay Lightning with Brian Compton, our colleague from NHL.com shortly. He'll be our first guest. And we also have Ross Greenberg, executive producer of Quest for the Cup. Uh, terrific all-access show, by the way. Uh, detailed the postponements and the protests in Episode 1. And Episode 2 airs tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, on ESPN Plus in the U.S. and YouTube.com slash NHL in Canada. They'll detail a lot of the Oscar Lindblom emotional return to the ice. So we'll have Ross Greenberg on as well. But one final point, Sean, on that Dallas-Vegas series. I think one thing to watch for, and it's more, and it's actually on the, on all four teams. And I wonder about the Islanders too, going into game two tonight, mental fatigue, right? I mean, and it was touched on a little bit by Rick bonus in the post game 
uh, after game two. He was talking more in-game because of losing face-offs, constantly killing penalties. But I wonder if this is the hard part now, right? You've gone through a couple of rounds. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You can push for it. But do you have enough to push? Do you have enough left physically, but do you have enough left mentally? And I think that's going to be a very telling thing through this conference final is who overcomes the mental fatigue of living in the bubble, especially in the West where they haven't moved at all, right? They've been there the whole time. That's going to be an interesting thing to say, right? To see right now it's a one-one series. It can go any way, but I think mental fatigue and who's better at handling that is going to be able to be the team that comes out on top. Look, there may be a little of that, but I think both teams put that to bed in their game sevens, right? I mean, all the cards were on the table for each team to fold. Um, You know, they had blown three-one leads. They, you know, all the pressure was on each of those teams because of that. And they each found a way to win, right, against really stacked circumstances, right? I I don't know that Dallas should have won that game if they didn't have the mental fortitude to come back from three one-goal deficits. And I don't know if Vegas wins if they don't have the mental fortitude to say, if we keep playing our game, we're going to get to Thatcher Demko, even though it seems so unlikely. And, And when you look at that series as a whole, Vancouver belonged nowhere in that series. No. Nowhere. Like all the credit to Vancouver, they were great in these playoffs. I think they're going to be good for a long time. But when you look at the chances, you look at the shots, you look at any metric you want to look at, it was completely lopsided. Um, But that gets to a team mentally because you start to think, what is going on? Can they really do this? The margin becomes so fine. And I think both teams showed their mental toughness. And, And now you've put in over 50 days. And you're, each of those teams now is seven games away from a Stanley Cup. Uh, I don't care how mentally tired you are, how physically tired you are. There's no way you put in that much time and, and you just, you know, fold your hand now and say, I, I don't have a winning hand. I'm going to check out. Well, I agree with you, but I think it's going to crop up again. That's the thing within this series and the back and forth. I think you'll see with the Dallas Vegas series is maybe maybe even less so mental more physical fatigue you know that that we'll have to we'll, we'll see if, with how it goes but let's flip it to the east because we got a game two tonight wednesday night as we record this wednesday morning and you got a team in the islanders i thought you know i mean look the cards were stacked against them i thought in game one and, and they played like it uh you know an eight two loss and now it's a question we'll talk about this a little bit with brian compton and and we'll know you might know by the time you listen to this who the starting goalie is for game two but it's going to be an ongoing storyline throughout the entire series between thomas grice and Semyon varlamov and i wonder you know has varlamov hit a wall uh, you know i mean you look at his last three outings five goals on 25 shots five goals on 31 shots four goals on 32 shots has varlamov hit a wall here or or and i'll say this because it's the islanders or can the Islanders do enough to help him out against the Lightning to get him over the wall if he is going to start game two or start again in these playoffs? Because we know the type of hockey the Islanders can play defensively. Can they do that against the Tampa Bay Lightning to help their goalies out? That's a big question. Yeah, and I don't know if they can do it, but I do know that they would have loved to have gotten off the whole day off in game one to give him from all those overtime games that he played – um, yeah. you know, three in that series. And, and then, you know, he got game seven off and then surprisingly got game one off uh, for at least the start, um, you know, and get him the kind of rest 
that the lightning had. And, and I think mentally as much as physically, cause it was so much tight hockey after they got up three, one. Um, so, and, and I get the sense that, that Thomas Grice, who, you know, they split pretty much right down the middle and we'll talk to Brian about this. He'll know better than I do a, a little bit, I guess they split right down the middle for the first half of the season. And, and then Semyon started to take over. Um, but I think Thomas Grice has that goalie personality a little bit like Hudobin in that he doesn't really nothing faces him right he, he walks in in game seven and <laughs> he's just like hey with middle of the regular season like nothing on the line let's go play some hockey and you know and then he comes out in game one against Tampa Bay and was just left out to dry I mean he was hung out and there was nothing he was going to do on some of those goals when you when you look back at that game and you're just like the goals that they scored the the to the the transition goal coming out of their end one pass into the middle of the ice the guy kind of ladles the puck up mm-hmm. passes to beat the d and it's all over or then you look at the headman shot where point comes in and he just out of midair is calling for it like an alley-oop dunk and then headman puts it you know skate high top of the skates around the ankles and points able to time it perfectly come in and tap it down and into the net i mean those are such high skill plays that as a goalie you just you have to shake your head and say, there's nothing I can do there. And you bring it all up and it just reiterates the, the, the main point I had with the lightning going into the playoffs. I think they are a machine. I think that they are so skilled offensively that beating them in a seven game series is going to be impossible to be honest with you. That's why I picked them to win the Stanley cup and getting over that game one against Columbus. I think it goes back to that, just getting over that hurdle, uh, being able to win that game in five overtimes and then coming back and winning other overtime games, the team looks way more mentally tough, way more physically tough. And I think the Islanders will settle in. I think they'll play a little bit more like the Islanders as this series goes on, starting with game two tonight. As I said, I thought the cards were stacked against them. Play a game seven, travel the next day, right into a game one against a team that, yes, also had to travel, but had been waiting six days, fresh, rested, um, you know, had a chance really to just, you know, you don't get away from it, I guess, in this environment, but at least, you know, rest the mind a little bit. And the Islanders never had that chance. So you see what happens in game one, but the Islanders would be better. I, I, I mean, John, I don't know if you agree with me. I can't see them winning four out of the next six games. It's going to be hard. Look, I, I think it's going to be really hard, but I, I see the, I see the Islanders a little bit like Columbus, right? And, and, Columbus took them to five overtimes in game one. The other games were close. And, and I, think, I think the biggest thing is even with all the overtime games that, that Tampa Bay's played, and they played four, and two of them were multiple overtimes, including the game five against the Bruins, which if the Bruins had won, we're talking about a very different series and, and a very different Tampa team, I think. There's a lot less miles on this Tampa team than there is any other team in the, in, left in the playoffs. Well, they, hold, hold, they played – Five, two five-game series, but they played 135 minutes of overtime. No, I, look, I understand. One but two 12-game, two, two six-game series, really. Yeah, and so they still haven't played a seven-game series. And nope. they had they, and in, a, in a playoffs where nobody, except for during the protests, has had more than three days off they at any six. time. Yeah. They had six. Yeah. They, they got healthier, and, and they got mentally, while they may have been bored, um, in the bubble, 
they mentally they've been able to recharge and they've been able to work at their game at a very leisurely play, pace where everybody else has kind of been go, 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 and then switch. Um, so I, I just think they're in the best position and they should be because they've been the best team in the tournament so far. Like people that are like, well, the Islanders had to play, you know, after one day they had to fly to Edmonton and then they had to play too bad. Too bad. They blew that, a 3-1 lead. That's what that's happens what you when you get go to Game going, 7. Going to Game 7. The <laughs> schedule's there. You know you know what's going to happen if you get that far. And, and even in the normal playoffs, that's always the carrot, right? The earlier yeah. you can get rid of another team, the more time you can have to rest. And, and look, the one other thing I think we need to bring up about all this rest is it still hasn't given Tampa Bay the one thing it might want which Stamkos. is Steven Stamkos back in the lineup. John Cooper said he's not going to play in this round. He's still rehabbing from his lower body injury. Um, you know, there's a chance if they advance that he could possibly play, but you don't know what you're going to get with him. Um, and, and to me, that might be the most amazing thing is what they've done offensively without Steven Stamkos is, is almost mind-boggling. Yeah, well, a couple of years ago, they did go to the Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Final against the Penguins. Oh, didn't have Stamkos all the way through, and he played – Game seven, and they lost um, to the Penguins. Um, but we've talked enough about – you've heard enough from us, uh, the Islanders and the Lightning. Let's get to our first guest. Brian Compton covers the Islanders for us for NHL.com. Uh, he's been all over this series. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We are well. Better than the Islanders after game one, right? I mean, I that, was yeah, – that... I mean, I knew this got deck was stacked against him, Brian. But, I mean, didn't expect that. No, not eight to two. Uh, you know, I expected them to be tired. It's, it's eerily similar to the 93 team fellows when they beat Pittsburgh on a Friday night in game seven and then had to play in Montreal on <laughs> Sunday afternoon. So, um, you know, having that, uh, you know, I, I know they kind of made it look easy in that game seven, but they had to be mentally exhausted and their legs just couldn't catch up either. So we'll see how it goes tonight. Well, before we get into more stuff, you brought up the 93 Islanders, and I have to bring up the story that you did on that team and comparing comparing it to this team and, and how many similarities there are. But even more than that, and everybody should go read the story, it's still on the site on the series page for, for, this, for the Eastern Conference Final. But we had to talk a minute about Rich Pilon and, and okay. the quote at the top of that story. The Islanders are going to win the Cup. Now that's a confident guy. He, he thinks they're going to win. He sees uh, – he just said it, it's not necessarily the team with the best players. It's the team that plays like a team the best. Um, and these guys, 1 through 20, uh, are all on the same page. It's it's a lot of the guys who have been here for a long time, Sean. So, um, they this is a team that generally loves the guy next to them. And that's really the mantra that Lou has expressed from the moment that he got here. So is he saying the Islanders don't have the best players in this series? I mean, come on, Rich. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think even Rich will admit that the Lightning probably have – I mean, they certainly have the best forward. They certainly have the best defenseman. Uh, and they probably have the best goalie. So uh, if you're going to go by individuals, the Lightning clearly have the edge. Um, I don't know the, the – light. I haven't been in the Lightning room very much over the last few years, so I can only go by what I've seen from, from New York. Uh, and it's a very, very tight-knit group. No, it is. And, and look, I started the year with Tampa Bay and, and Sweden, and I, I think they were a closer-knit group than they had been in the past. Even with all the new pieces that they've, they've brought in, I think that kind of woke that team up a little bit. And, and, you know, you talk about how many people have been in New York for a long time and developed that chemistry. Sometimes that works, and sometimes I think you need to shake things up to, 
to kind of freshen that core and say, you know, things aren't going to work like they have been. And, you know, to me, you talk about all the skill, but for the lightning, it's a lot of guys that were brought in um, for specific purposes, right? You, you have Blake Coleman bringing some energy and some, some physicality. You have Patrick Maroon bringing some experience and clearly some physicality and, and knowing how to win a cup, um, being the only guy on the team that has done so. Um, and, and, you know, I think that changed the dynamic of that team and, and made them what they are now. Yeah, and they had to be so motivated going into the season after what happened last year when they win 62 games and then get swept in the first round by by Columbus, guys. So uh, they know that they're better than that, and they certainly had the pieces, and you're right. I think they just needed to add a few guys here and there to put them over the top. You bring in a guy like Maroon coming off a, a cup with, with St. Louis last year. Um, that could really push them over the edge here. They're a really, really talented hockey team. Oh, no question about it. I mean, if I covered that series against Columbus and they were devastated. They were, they were lost their focus and they're a much different team. They're a much more resilient team. We've seen it in all the overtimes they've played, but Brian, I wanted to switch the focus here to the Islanders because we talked about it. The, the, the deck was stacked against them, how quickly they had to turn around from a game seven to game one. Uh, they did that to themselves. They could have ended that series against the Flyers earlier and they didn't. Um, and then they go out in game one and they lose by six goals. So before we get to, you know, some of the finer details, goaltending, special teams, all that stuff, just the response. They're playing tonight, Wednesday night, game two. Are we looking – do you anticipate seeing more of what Barry Trotz calls Islander hockey in game two? Because it clearly did not show up at all in game one. Yeah, I mean – like I said, I think that they were mentally shot going going into game one, Dan. They have to be better. They know that. I don't know how they could possibly be worse. <laughs> um, and to, to be honest, it's just like ev- everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Um, and even just the way they played defensively, when, when Braden Point just blows past Ryan Pollock, I mean, you never see Ryan get beat like that. So um, the legs have to catch up here a little bit. I think they're going to be more – acclimated to the time change now that they've been in Edmonton a couple of days. So um, they have to be a lot better in every area, specifically on the penalty kill uh, where they were so good against Philly and they gave up three, three the other night. So uh, they, they have to be better in every, in every area for sure. Is it, is it enough time? I mean, it's, it's less than 48 hours, right? I mean, we're talking about being fresh mentally, being fresh in the legs. Do they have enough time to do that? I think so. I think they're going to play with a lot of pride tonight. They know that they're much better than what we saw the other night for sure. And, you know, historically, since Barry got there, guys, they've played pretty well against Tampa. So I I would like to think that game one was more of an anomaly. Um, This could be a lot more of a 2-1-3-2 game. I think they're going to get back to their style here and play with a lot of pride tonight. Yeah, I expect that as well. I expect them to be better. I Honestly, and I said it before you came on, I don't know that they can win four out of the next six games against this Lightning right. team the way Tampa, the, the, with the talent that the Lightning have. But let's go to the goaltending because that's obviously a big question. We don't know as we record this who's going to start game two. But regardless of who starts game two, Brian, Sean and I both believe the goaltending is going to be a storyline to, to follow with the Islanders throughout this series. And I'm wondering if Semyon Varlamov has simply just hit a wall. What do you think? Yeah, and I think it might be more mental than physical, Dan. I mean, we have to remember these guys are human beings, right? I mean, Varlamov has a family. They were in Toronto for more than 40 days. Now they're in Edmonton. If they somehow find a way to beat Tampa and go on to the final, they're going to be gone for another few weeks. So 
Um, it's a grind, man. And I'm with you. So Varley has looked off these past three games that he's played in. Um, I was pretty certain um, that Grice was going to start in game seven just because he had more of the persona that Trotz needed for a game seven win. So um, I, I don't know if Varley goes tonight either. Uh, Grice barely played, played what, 10 and a half minutes in game one. So um, he's going to be more fresh again. Um, I, I was kind of surprised that Grice started game one. I know I'm contradicting myself here a little bit, but when, when you play that game seven on Saturday and then you travel, um, I know Grice got the shutout, but I just thought maybe to give Grice a night off and let Varley start game one and see what happens after that. But he went right back to Grice because of that shutout, um, and he barely played in that game one. So I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if Grice gets the start here in game two, and we'll see what happens after that. He also didn't work much in that game seven shutout. Um, they yeah. really cl- they really clamped down on the Flyers. It wasn't it wasn't much of a taxing effort for for Thomas Grice, who hadn't played, had only started one other game. So um, I I also wouldn't be surprised that because if anybody can take a shelling like that, it seems like it would be Thomas Grice. He, Dan and I were talking before you you came in, like he really seems like one of those untraditional goalies that just doesn't really have a care in the world nothing phases thomas right it's real it's really unbelievable i mean <laughs> when you think of when you think of the similar numbers that he had this year with varlamov last year with robin leonard um and both times barry has gone in the other direction when the playoffs roll around and thomas just shrugs his shoulders goes okay you know whenever you need me i'll be ready um and the way that he went in in game two against philly um, and made 36 saves and, and came up, you know, just fan- fantastic. And then in game seven, uh, when they have to win or they're going home, and you're right, Sean, he, he didn't, he barely broke a sweat, but he made timely saves and he only faces 16 shots. So um, he's, his personality, it's nothing I've ever seen before. Honestly, it's crazy. He's really not a sports writer's dream, though. I mean, he's more of a sports <laughs> writer's nightmare because he doesn't, you know what, you know what, Dan? He's very different when the recorders aren't on. He's a really, really funny guy. He's got a great sense of humor. But, man, once you hit record, it's a totally <laughs> different ballgame with Thomas Christ. He actually reminds me a little bit of Kadobin in, in Dallas in the same kind of way. You know, you saw him get pulled in game two. Um, I, I think that was not performance-related. It was the fact that they were out of the game at 3 nothing, um, and that he – there was nothing he was going to do. So let's get him a little rest because he's their only hope with Bishop out. Um, And uh, you know, I I just, but they're the same kind of personality. And I think the teams kind of feed off of that when, when the chips are down. Yeah, for sure. And like, like, like I said, he's just, he's got ice in his veins and he kind of needs that calming persona sometimes. And I think the Islanders needed that in that game seven in particular, after losing their third game of the series in overtime. And they were the much better team against Philly in game six. And that was kind of the message that Barry was conveying going into game seven. And, you know, you combine that with Grice's personality. It was just the perfect match. You know, and it's probably an easy spot here for Barry Trotz too, as you go into game two, because it's very obvious. Nobody is wondering why the Islanders lost game one. I mean, that's, it's quite obvious. You, I don't necessarily know you want to throw it out uh, because it's the playoffs. You do. I heard Pete DeBoer say this the other day, like you do have to analyze what happened because it is the playoffs. It is the Western conference final. But after that, you know, nobody's going to ask questions. The question that I have though is tactically from the Islanders perspective, 
what do you think that they need to do to slow down Tampa? Because Tampa is so good, especially off the rust. They, 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 you know, they can hit you with short passes. They can hit you with a stretch pass. They can beat you with speed. I mean, you talked about Braden Point blowing past Ryan Pulak. Braden Point can blow past anybody in this league yep. because he's that no good doubt. and he's that fast. Yep. So tactically, what kind of change or adjustment do you see the Islanders having to make to just to compete in this series, not just for game two, but for the rest of this series? I think the big thing that stood out for me in game one, Dan, was the Hedman and McDonough Rockets um, because you had traffic in front of the net both times, and that's not common with this Islanders defense. They're usually pretty physical in front of their own net. They're pretty good at, at clearing space so, that, so their goaltender can see the puck, and that wasn't the case in game one. So they've really got to be better in that area. Uh, and as far as burning the tape goes, Dan, I, w- I don't think I would burn it. If I'm Barry, and I'm clearly not, there's no – there's no confusion there, but um, I think I think you just show them the tape and say, look. And Jordan Eberle said it after the game. We we deserve to be here, um, and I think you need to re let you know reaffirm that belief um, that that was an anomaly. That they're so much better than what we saw in Game One, um, and I think, like I said earlier, I think you're going to see them play with a lot more pride in Game Two. One of the things that I, I think will be interesting, and, and we've started with this round to do a coach's corner again, something we did during the regular season. We weren't really able to pull it off during the first couple of rounds because of how quickly the games came. Um, but we have uh, Rob Cookson doing the Eastern Conference Final, and, and Dan's helping to grow ghost right one with with uh, Rob Zettler for the Western Conference. Um, and in his first one, Cookson, you know, who, who was with Ottawa when J.P. Pajot was there, mentioned that you know jp has played really well in a shutdown role against the islanders i mean against the lightning and against their their top line um you know maybe we see a little bit more of that maybe there's there's a i mean tampa has the last change but you know maybe that's something that brought uh, that barry tries to exploit a little bit yeah for sure pajot has been so good for these guys i mean i remember talking with you guys in june i think it was about um you know how how teams that go this far in the playoffs have to be deep down the middle. And that's why Lou went out and made this trade. And, um, I, you know, talking with Barry before return to play started that second training camp really helped Pajot and Andy Green, both guys who have been so good during this whole run, just getting more acclimated to the system, more acclimated to their, to their new, you know, new surroundings and new teammates. Um, Pajot is a big game player as we've seen throughout these playoffs. And as we saw in Ottawa a few years back, right. When he was so good for those guys. So, um, he's going to help the Islanders for sure. Um, to not go out, not go down without a fight here. And I think that goes back to just playing with pride and he's going to be a big part of that. Well, yeah, he he is, he has, he's been special for the Islanders in in these playoffs. No question about it. Brian, I did want to flip it to the West because I know you're following everything. Um, And, you know, that that game too, you know, I'll bring it up this way. Dallas is playing a lot of defensive hockey now in this first two games against Vegas. and, And that's what their MO is to play strong defensive hockey. It's what the Islanders MO is too. But I was saying it before that I think Dallas needs to find a balance here to play more of a, of a, you know, push more for offense as they did against Colorado, against Vegas. And I'm curious what you've seen from the first two games of this series where we've only seen four goals and two shutouts. Do you think this is the way this series is just going to go, that it's going to be a back and forth and, you know, not very much scoring? Or do you think that, like I said, I think Dallas can push for a little bit more offense? 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, if I'm the Stars, I'd be pretty concerned right now because I just feel like once Stasny scored last night, guys, and I think our, our colleague Nick Katsanaga put it best, the dam broke. Like, they just finally broke through, uh, and then they pulled away. You know, Vegas was, was really – they deserved a you know, much better fate as far as how long the series went in the last round. If not for Thatcher Demko, that series ends probably a lot sooner than it did. So, um, to me, they're the best team in this entire tournament. Robin Leonard has been lights out, as we know, what's that, four shutouts in seven games. Um, Dallas has to figure some things out here offensively. They have the pieces to do it. But, man, I just think Vegas is so deep from top to bottom. They're, they're getting the goaltending that they need. I, I think uh, this is a monumental task here moving forward for the Stars. Wow, we have a little dissension here. Brian thinks that the Vegas Golden Knights are the best team in the left in the playoffs. Dan thinks the Tampa Bay Lightning are the best team left in the playoffs. Uh, we're going to have to have some sort of battle royal. How about a tiebreaker? <laughs> How about a tiebreaker, Sean? We, we, oh, you you're going gonna, gonna to put me on the spot. Hey? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like Vegas, and I don't know that they're the best team. I think it's a combination of Brian's argument or Rich Pilon's argument, right? It's, it's, I don't know that they're the most talented team, but I, I think they play the best team game, right? And yeah. the one guy we haven't talked about, and we've talked about so many young defensemen in this tournament, I mean, it's ridiculous, is Shea Theodore for Vegas. He's turning ridiculous. into a Norris, Norris Trophy caliber defenseman right in front of our eyes, and He's never, you know, ever since he came from Anaheim in the expansion draft, he, he's never really gotten any publicity. You know, I guess part of it's that West Coast bias. Nobody stays up to watch those West Coast games except for us. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, he, he just does everything, and, and he really makes them go um, in, in ways that they haven't had in the past. So I, I think they're the best constructed team. And, and, again, you know, you get a guy like Alex Tuck playing third line eight goals, right? It, yep. it, that's, that's when you know you have a special team. So if I, if I had to vote, I would vote for Vegas. And, you know, that is who I voted for. Um, and thinking that would win this once we started back up. Um, but uh, I think Tampa's the most talented team. So I, I'm kind of sitting on the fence, but I, I think Vegas is the best team left. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Theodore that, that, guy, that writers or whoever aren't recognizing maybe it is the west coast thing sean i don't know but um he the the best thing you can do when you're not getting that kind of publicity is just force the issue shay theater is forcing people um to, to recognize how good of a player he is and um you know nate schmidt they just have so many guys um do, do they have that star power that you know headman and um, Braden Point and Kucherov, you know, probably not. But, you know, going back to what you're saying, what Rich Pilon said, sometimes you don't need to have that star power. If you're playing for the guy next year and you're all pulling on the same rope, um, good things can happen. I think that's what you're seeing with Vegas. Yeah, and to give credit where it's due, I, I actually I think it was Thomas Drance from The Athletic in Vancouver tweeted last night that when there is a best-on-best best international tournament, we're talking about Shea Theodore, the next best-on-best best international tournament, Shea Theodore could be the top-pair left-handed defenseman for Team Canada in that tournament. Yeah. Is that good? And I agree with that. Uh, no question. And he's probably right up there in the running uh, for Vegas' Conn Smythe trophy favorite. Oh, you got to give Leonard, obviously, with the shutouts, um, a look there, too. What about the Islanders right now, Brian? Uh, their Conn Smythe trophy favorite because you got four Ooh, teams left and we're looking at it who, who, who do you think is the islanders favorite right now 
That's a really good one. Um, I'm going Josh Bailey, guys. Um, and I know he has what two, two or three goals in this tournament, and that would be really hard for him to win to win the Smythe when you don't score a whole lot. But he's been fantastic. He's their leading scorer. Um, he's always getting the primary assist on goals from Nelson or Beauvillier. He's made those two guys better throughout this tournament. He's a 200 foot player. Um, he's just done everything for these guys, and I think it would be. Um, justice for the way he's been treated by aisle twitter for the better part of the last 12 years um there's a long way to go here but he has been so he's been really really good for them uh throughout this tournament it's not gonna be one of their goalies because they're splitting the duty here um and their defenseman there's not a guy who's really been uh putting up the points per se um so i'm gonna go bailey see i would i Look, Bailey's a good choice. I would go Barzell just because he's the one guy who truly strikes fear into the other team. Like, that's the one guy that they have to game plan for. It's the one guy that puts the defense under pressure. Even in game one against Tampa Bay, like, he was the one player when he had the puck on his stick made Hedman and McDonough look nervous. Well, that's what Matthew does. I mean, Matthew, every time he has the puck, you know that something special can happen. And he's really, really elevated his game uh, over the past round and a half or so, Sean. I, I thought games in six, game six and seven might have been his two best as an Islander and as a pro, to be honest. So um, he's only going to get better as his career goes on. And, man, when you, when you have the luxury of learning from a guy like Barry Trotz, it can only do wonders for you. It's funny, guys, because I actually don't agree with either one of you. I, I would go Brock Nelson. I think Brock Nelson has been their best player. I think he's, he's involved in so many different scoring chances and goals. He's got 15.7 goals. He's got a couple of game winners. So Brock Nelson would actually – I mean, that's the, that's the thing with the – it kind of – doesn't that, Brian, I mean, maybe we can end on this. Doesn't that kind of show you the type of team that the Islanders are – that you have three guys here who are following and watching every game and three different opinions on who their best player is going to be or has been in this, uh, in this playoff so far. No, it really does, Dan, and you can argue all of them. You're absolutely right. And I was talking to Ray Ferraro about Brock Nelson the other day, and he was saying, and I totally agree with Ray, Brock Nelson is, a, is night and day from before Barry got here. Barry Trotz has made Brock Nelson such a better hockey player on both ends of the ice over the past two years. He's just worked wonders with the guy. So um, it could be any one of the – it could be Pajot. I mean, you just don't know. There's, there's so many different guys who have contributed to this run, and that's a big reason why they're here. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you taking the time and spending a little bit with us and sharing your Islanders' knowledge. Um, they're getting ready to play a game two, and you need to get ready to cover that. You need to write the three keys for us and, and do some <laughs> other stuff. So, sadly, we're going to have to let you go. I'm on it, boss. Thanks for having me, fellas. All the best. <laughs> Great stuff there, Sean, from uh, Brian Compton. And, and I'm glad we got into a little bit of the Con Smythe discussion. By the way, I, I do think it definitely tells the story of the Islanders that we have three different opinions on, on who could be their Con Smythe favorite. I don't think they win the series, so I don't think they win the Con Smythe. Uh, but let's take a look at a broader picture here of the Con Smythe favorites from, you know, right now. We did this on NHL.com. And Dallas defenseman Miro Heiskanen, was the favorite among the writers. I think you got, what, nine out of 11 first-place votes. You didn't have a vote, right, John? No, I was, uh, I was the moderator. I collected all the votes and did the math, so it's probably wrong. Uh, Miro <laughs> got, got five. We had, uh, we, had 11, we had 11 voters. 
Um, so uh, Miro got five of the 11 first place votes. He, oh. he was nine of the 11 ballots. Ah, all right. I got to only one there. on that many ballots. And uh, we did a three, two, one uh, voting basis. He had 22 points and Braden point was second with 13 points and three first place votes. I think after game one of the Eastern conference final, that gap has closed a little bit because yeah. he was ridiculous in game one. And, and our colleague, Mike Zeisberger, did a fantastic piece on on his development where he went back and, you know, talked to not only Braden's dad, um, but several other people that were influential in his development or saw him when he was younger, um, you know. And, and the funniest thing in the whole story is he was called up to play in the Western Hockey League when he was 15 years old to play in the playoffs. And he walked in the locker room and the team captain said, who brought their brother to the, to the locker room? Like he, he didn't know, he didn't know a younger brother. He didn't know yeah. that, that Braden point was going to play in the playoffs. Cause he was like five foot three and a hundred pounds. And you know, his, his billet parents said, you know, his billet dad said, you looked at him and you were like, Oh my God, he's going to get crushed. And he just went out and played and that's the way he's been his whole life. And then it got into a little bit of how, you know, and Cooper talked about this other day, how he was such a average skater at best when he yes. reported to camp and then he worked with Barb Underhill. He worked with uh, the Canadian Olympic uh, skaters, instructors, and, and really turned that into a huge part of his game. Oh no, skate absolutely. That that's well known now. The work that he did with Barb Underhill to become the skating to become the skater that he is. And you're right. I mean, after game one of that series, I mean, look, Braden Point now has 23 points in the playoffs. He was dynamic in game one. He's been great any the whole thing. But I still go back to Miro Heiskanen and I, and and Miro needs to do more for Dallas against Vegas, but Miro Heiskanen had an eight game point streak. We're talking about a defenseman here who a very young defenseman. He had an eight game point streak. He had 21 points through 16 games. The other defenseman, and I got this list from, from our stats department, the other defenseman in NHL history in playoff history who have had who've required 20 games or fewer, or fewer than 20 games to get to 20 points are Paul Coffey, Bobby Orr, Brian Leach, Ray Bork, Al McInnes, Denny Potvin, and Larry Robinson. They, they all needed less, 16 games or less. Miro Heiskanen needed 16 games or less. Those guys are all in the Hall of Fame. That's the comparison we're making right now with what he's done in these playoffs particularly alone to Miro Heiskanen. That's why I thought through two rounds or through the first you know, qualifier and a round robin and then two rounds that Miro Heiskanen was a runaway for the Smythe. Now he needs to do more in this round to, to stick up for that, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Only because of we've seen how much this team struggles to score otherwise, right? Their their top line has not been good. Uh, ben and Sagan have been quiet for the most part. Um, you know, they're they're not overly deep. They get a lot of uh, offensive production from their blue line. You know, you throw Klingberg in, um, and and that's kind of what makes this team run. And you know, I'm interested to see what he does against Vegas. Like I said earlier, you know, Colorado is a team that you know, especially with Kadri and a couple other players they have, they can, you know, they can really try and wear you down. But they couldn't, they couldn't get Miro clean. Like no. he's such a good skater um, that nobody ever seems to be able to get him clean. Um, but this Vegas team might be the best four check he faces in the playoffs and it, it, he's going to have to really work hard to get his chances now. So, um, you know, and, and it's so rare that a defenseman 
wins the Conn Smythe, um, just because it's such a it's such a scoring, yeah, intense, it is such a scoring, scoring thing. So um, you know, I, I think Duncan Keith was the last one to win, um, and in our vote, Hedman was in there. He was fifth. He, he had seven points in one first-place vote, and, and I don't think that was misplaced. I, I think this is the best I've seen Victor Hedman play in a long time, and, and the playoffs have been so long that he's played so well that when we started out, we didn't even know if he could play. You know, he <laughs> twisted his ankle in that, in that first game and, you know, walked off smashing his stick, and you're like, oh, my God, can he play? Is this going to be another injury that sidelines him like it was last year? And if he comes back, is he going to be effective? He has been ridiculously good you know you you see in the last game where he had a couple a couple of points and you know set up the the point goal and and, you know he scored the game winner against boston and double overtime but it's not even the offense it's just everything he's doing he he is the dominant foundational defenseman that the tampa bay lightning believed they would get when when they drafted him um number two so uh, to me he's had an unbelievable tournament yeah, and you actually wonder if the Islanders would still have him if they drafted him one, right? They drafted Tavares one in 2009, and Hedman went two. Uh, would they still have him? Who knows? Who knows how that would go? But, you know, before we get to our, our next guest, Ross Greenberg, executive producer of Quest for the Cup, I did want to uh, just to wrap up this consummate discussion. We, we touched on a number of players here. Let's not ignore the obvious either. Andre Vasilevsky has been darn good for the Lightning, right? I mean, he's been really good, 11-3. and three. Uh, not 192 goals against the 930 save percentage of the four teams still playing the one team that doesn't have any question marks about their goaltending or questions at all about their goaltending is Tampa Bay because of Vasilevsky. Yeah. And he's played all the games and he's the only goalie that's done that. I, I think the most amazing stat for him, 50 shots in overtime, 50 saves. Yeah. Like when I, things are on the line, that's when he delivered, and it's completely different from last year. You know, you're talking about a Vezina Trophy winner last year, a finalist this year, and the only small picking point that I that I have with you is I don't believe there are any questions in, in Vegas about their goaltending. Um, Robin Lane. The question of who's playing. That's the, yeah. That's and Robin Laner's their goalie, and Pete DeBoer has the luxury, which, which uh, John Cooper does not that when there's back-to-back games or his goalie starting to look a little fatigued, that he can dip into a 1A or 1B who's pretty darn good. Um, you know, uh, nothing against the Tampa Bay goalies, but they don't have a Marc-Andre Fleury sitting no. on the bench. So, I, I, again, you know, I think last round people tried to make a goalie controversy in, in Vegas. And to me, it was shocking. Like, And, and nobody likes Marc-Andre Fleury more than I do. I think he's one of the best goalies you know of his generation a a great guy you won't meet a nicer guy in hockey um but you know the uproar that came out of vegas um when laner started over him um you know when they thought that that flurry was going to play and the fact that DeBoer had lost the team that he had lost the fan base that all these things happened was mind-blowing to me i mean robin laner has been so good there would be no reason other than the condensed schedule to ever start another goalie yeah no yeah a hundred percent i agree with you i guess the only question there was 
you know, who's going to play. But anyway, let's, let's move on. Uh, Ross Greenberg, we were able to catch up with him, executive producer of Quest for the Cup. The second episode airs tonight, Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus in the United States, youtube.com slash NHL in Canada. This guy gets to see hours upon hours upon hours of footage that we don't get to see, and they have to all break it down into a show that we all get to watch and enjoy. We were able to catch up with him. Here's that interview with Ross Greenberg. Ross, thanks so much for joining us. We got episode two. It airs tonight, Wednesday night, uh, Quest for the Cup. So you're the executive producer. Tell us your favorite part of episode two. What can the viewers look forward to watching? There's a few good parts. Obviously, there's a very interesting storyline with Oscar Lindblom. You know, he obviously fought cancer uh, for six months. We had the footage of him ringing the bell at the hospital when he embraced his girlfriend and had a slew of nurses clapping for him as he finished his chemotherapy. And then obviously it was a very dramatic return to the ice during the playoffs in this last game, uh, game six actually against the Islanders. Um, quite a moment, you know, you, we had a shot that I'll never forget of the Islanders banging their sticks on the sideboard uh, as they acknowledged that he was on the rink. And that that's very emotional. And then there's a couple of really funny moments, to be honest with you. Uh, there's an interview with Barry Trotz before game seven, you know, after game six and before game seven, where they asked him any lineup changes. And he says, yes. And they just <laughs> sat there and didn't respond to what the changes were. <laughs> And we kept in the response of one of the writers who basically said, well, I'm not going to follow up on that, Barry. And then we <laughs> cut away. And then there was a great moment with John Cooper who was relaxing in a lagoon, you know, in an off day in Toronto. And he recognized that, well, it's nice to be in the lagoon and, and people have some fishing rods. The only problem is there's no fish. And that was, you know, it just showed another side of John Cooper, which we've known about for quite a few years because of the kind of person he is. Uh, we followed him around a lot. So, but there's, you know, there's some great moments on the ice as well. I mean, some magical moments, the Demko saves. And I think people are going to be totally intrigued by this show. It's, it's one of our best. Is it, is it partially just, the circumstances that that make it different from all the other ones that you've done and the fact that look let's face it you, you, every year you hope something happens and now you've done two shows <laughs> and you've had two just out of this world things happen the the player protests in the first one and and the Oscar mm-hmm. Lindbaum thing in the second one um has it made a huge difference in in the production of the show and the quality of it you know it's funny i mean obviously the pandemic has given us uh, a lot of other off ice interesting developments to go get into including even following a guy in a haircut which we normally don't do um but i think you know the reeve situation was fascinating in show one and then all of a sudden it's followed up by this bizarre hit to the head and uh and his one game suspension which we're behind the scenes for so I've noticed with this show, if you continue to follow storylines and plug into characters, that, that you're going to see developments, uh, even without this, this crazy isolated pandemic uh, and the fact that we're playing all these games up in Canada and Edmonton now. 
So it's, it's, you know, you really have to kind of just focus on following storylines and the teams every year and the coaches and the players always have evolved into this unique storytelling because there's so much on the line. Look, this is the Stanley Cup playoffs and the NHL, you know, led by Gary and and also Steve Mayer and, you know, John Delapina have gotten us this incredible access. And, you know, to get this access during the Stanley Cup playoffs, I don't think there's another league. I know there's not another league that, that enables you to get so close to what's going on, on and off the ice. And Ross, I wanted to ask you, because there's obviously unique circumstances of doing this in a bubble. You mentioned doing it in two Canadian cities. Mm-hmm. It, it, you've done a number of these types of shows where you could go home with players and you're in different cities mm-hmm. and traveling around and all that. Tell us about the unique circumstances of just having two cities, now one, uh, and doing this within the confines of a bubble and, and how that has changed, if at all, the approach of, of uh, the storytelling and, and changed the approach of the, approach of the production. Well, we need the mental health of our staff in check because uh, – <laughs> You know, they're all in the bubble as well. And so, you know, Michael Greenberg in, in Edmonton and Jason Katz, who was in Toronto and, and now is in Edmonton, and all of our shooters, you know, and all of our audio personnel and our media management people, everybody's in the bubble. So that presents a unique challenge just to keep them sane, frankly, uh, just like the players. Uh, the other thing it, it kind of forces us to do is focus on our media management, make sure we can get all the material back to the U.S. and back to our edit rooms in New York on a, on a really quick, timely basis so we can put this thing together in six days. And on a daily basis, it's just a continuous grind. Uh, but they're so focused. I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's helped them focus. They, they're living and breathing you know, the the Stanley Cup playoffs right now on a daily basis in Edmonton within the bubble. So, you know, that's given them a lot of motivation to pass the time by working their butts off for 16 hours a day. Um, And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but that, you know, they didn't have any distractions in prior years either because they're all a professional staff that's used to this kind of grind but it's, it's definitely added to the, to the mental health situation. <laughs> you know, when, when you do this one, when I look at the first couple episodes, one of the things that I think, and it, it always, when you do these and you've done these for a number of years, the key is the characters, like you were saying. And, you yeah. know, it seems, especially with, with the West, maybe even more than the East, the characters are unbelievable. You talked a little bit about Ryan Reeves. Yeah. You have, you have um, Schmidt there for Vegas and, and Kadobin yeah. for Dallas. I mean, there's just been a ton of personalities. Jamie and then you ben. get, yeah. And then you get a kid, you know, that scores the, the hat trick there in game yeah. seven, who nobody, who nobody even knew about and has a pretty good personality. So um, I, I would assume as you do this, you know, you're going to get good stuff, but then when you get these people that really seem to enjoy the camera, it makes what you do a little bit easier. And you give Ranta was hysterical on Jamie Ben in the post, game press conference they have a very funny exchange and the writers are basically saying who are you you know where'd you come from you know uh a hat trick in game seven so that was really a funny moment that you'll see 
in the episode tonight. Um, and Ben kind of introduces him in a funny way. So it's, you know, it's really, it's really, it's really trying to press on getting those moments. And I have to tip my hat to Michael and, and others, Jason Katz, because they, you know, anyone can do those kinds of things, but for us to capture that press conference in that way, is just going above and beyond. And our editors, Tim Mullen, Jackie Decker, you know, to pounce on that press conference and realize they had a fun moment. So that's what makes it all special. Um, the characters, you know, NHL players are characters. Coaches are characters. You know, Bonus has been great to us. Um, as I said, Cooper's been great to us. So, you know, it's just, it's and one of the best ever is Barry Trotz. And to see him, working on the bench and behind the scenes is fascinating, uh, you know, to, to create his well-oiled machine, even though the eight to two lost, <laughs> you know, coming off of, I guess, game seven was a shocker, but I, I expect that series is going to pick up and, and be tight. And the other one just obviously seems tight. Well, yeah, there's no question about that. Um, I wanted to, you, you mentioned a bunch of names, so give us a little rundown on how the production does work. Uh, for this show, because I know you're not on site, but you have all this staff that is on site. So how does this whole, you know, how, how's the sausage made? How does it all come together? Well, there's a constant communication on a daily basis. I've probably gotten three calls since we've been on this, but um, you know, from now Edmonton to us in New York and myself and Steve Stern, the other executive producer kind of plot storylines that we think we want to go after, but then on the, Seen in Edmonton, you know, we have Jason Katz and Michael Greenberg, both of which have been doing this for years and years, and they understand the gold, you know, in, in following certain players. We know we have an arc of a story, and, you know, we're not going to let Ryan Reeves go till they're out of the playoffs or, or they're in the Stanley Cup finals. So we know that there are certain characters we need to now follow throughout because we need to tell the arc of their story, and it's ever-changing. Obviously, coaches as leaders are part of that arc uh, for each team, you know, setting the tone and and really kind of becoming the glue and the leadership of each team. But then you have the Jamie Benz. You have, you know, different guys. Robert Leonard. Leonard's going to become a big part of our next show because we're going to tell his whole story. So it'll be maybe as emotional as, you know, as Oscars was in tonight's show. Um, but you, you look for those gripping storylines, uh, the ones that are, you know, over the top in emotion like Ryan Reeves or Lynn Blom or now Leonard. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, kind of a focus that you have to have to just dig out some compelling stories. Have you ever sat down to figure out the man hours that go into one episode? I mean, we sit, oh my and, we, God. And, we sit and we watch it, right? If half an hour, 45 minutes, you're like, oh, that was good. And, and yeah. Dan and I both know from, you know, writing and, and doing this podcast and everything else, the, the man hours that go into that that nobody sees. But when I look at this production, you know, when you talked a little bit about your staff, the, the, the amount of time to condense down into an episode must be astronomical. Well, what's incredibly intense about it is that the whole thing is cut in six days. So th- think about that. We accumulate all this footage, all these games are covered, all this off-ice footage is covered, and we're talking 100 hours probably all in, maybe more, I don't know, from three or four cameras. 
you know, I, you would, you would be blown away if you guys sat behind the scenes and watched all this develop because, you know, all this footage comes in, it's logged. It's all researched by our crew here. Uh, our editors pile through the footage. We've told them what stories we want. That footage comes in from, you know, all angles. We have the game synced up so that all the sound is there. Every five people are mic'd per game. So we have to sync map that. We have to kind of put it all together so that all the four cameras are synced up with all the sound. So in any given moment, the editor knows he has to go to this point or that point. If there's a Reeves hit, you know, like we saw, we have to kind of get it from three or four angles. We have to hear the sound on the ice. So it's almost numbing. And I have to be honest with you, there's probably one crew in the world, and I'm not being braggadocious or anything, but there's probably one crew in the world that we've assembled that can actually execute this show and certainly execute it on the level you're seeing it. I mean, there are no editors. Tim Mullen is the only editor in the world that can actually put this together in six days. It's about his speed, his craft, and his skill, you know, at telling a story. Um, that's just a fact. And I, I think, you know, that's what's so intriguing and mesmerizing about this show. If you watch these shows, you'll think we spent six months in an edit room to put them together. And it's happening in six days. It is. Yeah. It's amazing. That stuff, it blows me away, that stuff. Last one from us, Ross, and I wanted to ask you about this because I know it's been a number of years now that you've worked with the NHL. What has mm. the experience been like? working with the NHL what have you learned about hockey players hockey coaches you just mentioned before some of them are characters so what's this whole experience been like working with the league well it's most fun I've had in my career honestly I mean I'm getting chills thinking about it we you know I've been there for the last 10 years uh, starting with Road to the Winter Classic at HBO all those years ago when we created that series and from that moment on Gary Bettman said, we're going to do this. And John Collins was with him at the time. And we set out to go behind the scenes during the regular season following two NHL teams. And Gary stands up before presidents, general managers, coaches, and gives them an ultimatum, basically saying, if you want to be in the road to winter class, if you want to be in the winter classic as a showcase for your team, then you have to allow these cameras in for four weeks before, and they're going to focus and follow you uh, every day. And then what he's done with his quest for the Stanley cup is dictate the same terms that, okay, these cameras are going in, these mics are going on you and you're going to let these cameras follow you. And, you know, there's no other league, as I said earlier, that's allowed that kind of access. So, you know, I just have watched Gary over the last, you know, I've known him for 30 years, but I've watched him over the last 10 that I've been pretty involved. And, you know, with now Steve Mayer coming in by his side, you know, it's been able, we've been able to do things that, that no other television crew has ever done. Um, and it harkens back to the great Steve Sable and NFL films. And I think we're helping to build an image of the league through these kinds of shows that are going to, you know, give fans and non-hockey fans a really good look at why they should get involved with the NHL. So 
it's been a pleasure working with all of them. Uh, they're great people. Russ Ciberini. I can go through a list of a dozen. Gary Mahar, Bill Daly, you know, of course, Gary Bettman and Steve Mayer at the top of the list. It's just been a, a joy and a pleasure. And it shows. It shows in the product. I, I think you're right about the NFL Films comparison. Look, we, we really... In, we really appreciate you taking some time to, to join us and, and promote the show a little bit and, and not answer your phone for a few minutes. Um, and maybe that's a respite for you. I don't know, but uh, we really do appreciate your time and uh, good luck with the rest of the show. I got to tell you, I can't wait until the end. I want to see all the other shows, but the yeah. end when the Stanley cups awarded in the most unique yeah. circumstances ever, like that's going to be the big payoff for you guys. You're right. I mean, the emotional won't be there. The only difference is you won't have the crowd roaring, but, but wait till you see the reaction of the players on the ice. I mean, you'll see some endings to the uh, to the last round as they go into the conference finals. You're going to see some stuff in the locker room that'll surprise you, given you know that the emotion there is as high as I've seen it on any other show we've done. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be different, but uh, the players and coaches who I also have admired all these years, by the way, and are most down-to-earth people I've ever seen in professional sports, you know, they, they are going to be riding high when this thing is lifted. Yeah, I'm sure you will too. Ross, thanks so much for hopping on with okay. us. Okay. You can go return all those calls now. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Good stuff there from Ross Greenberg, Sean. Uh, great to catch up with him and learn a little bit about how that show is all put together. Um, as usual, you know, we've got the final four here. But as usual, with 27 teams not playing, there's lots of news going on outside the bubbles. And Don Sweeney, the Boston Bruins general manager, he spoke this morning, Wednesday morning, answered some questions about Tuka Rask, answered some questions about Tory Krug. But let's stick with Tuka Rask here because Sweeney, see, you know, that he, he wants him back. There's no question about it. There's no question with their goaltending, Sweeney says. And Tuka's the one that left the bubble because of his family and all that. Uh, but that seems to be water under the bridge here with the Bruins, and they're looking to come back again with Tuka Rask and Yaroslav Alak. And why wouldn't they? I mean, they've been among the top goaltending pairs for a number of years now in the NHL. Yeah, I mean, we just talked about Vasilevsky, and, and Rask is in that class, right? He's a Vezina Trophy-level goaltender. Um, you can't, as much as I think some, some Boston fandom would like to, you know, you, you can't hold what happened this year against them in the playoffs. Um, you know, real life happens. It happens for all of us. Like yeah, this has been the most trying time in anybody's collective memory. And, and, you know, we've all been people that are lucky enough to work from home have had the opportunity to be with their family. I've been with my family more in the last couple of months than I am normally with them at any time. And it's been a blessing in the middle of all of this pandemic horrors. The blessing has been that I've been with my family more than I traditionally will between commuting into New York city, traveling extensively for various NHL events and, and just working a 10 hour day in the office. Um, you know, I don't have the opportunities that I've had through these last couple of months. And, each of the players that's been involved in the playoffs has been denied that. Um, so I don't think you can hold any of that against them. And, and, you know, I don't think that the team will. And, and look, all those other questions that you mentioned, you know, Krug, also Chara, who's out of contract and, and needs to come back. Those all impact the window for, for the Bruins. Yeah. And it's closing, right? Bergeron's getting older. Um, 
Marshawn's getting older. Krejci's getting older. Krejci's getting older. There, David Pasternak's the only one that's not getting older. And McAvoy. <laughs> um, what do you do, right? What do you do if you if I would be shocked if Sweeney came out and said, you know, I don't know that we can repair this, and we're going to have to think about what we're going to do without Tuka Rask, right? It, this year is going to be chaos enough without having to try and replace a number one goalie. To me, the more interesting point was what some people perceived as a lukewarm endorsement of Chara coming back. Zdeno Chara said he wants to come back, thinks he can still play, you know, has been a Bruin for life, wants to help this team try and win another cup. And, you know, after Sweeney said he he hasn't found a landing spot on his own roster for Krug and, and the, the contract, issues that are there and the fact that they would have to move out a good amount of salary to get him in and they're still thinking about how they can do that but after that it was kind of you know we really respect Zidane he's done a lot for the Bruins there was no yeah we're really going to work at bringing this our captain back and it's a tough spot for Don Sweeney I mean I know we wanted to talk a little bit more about some other goalies here and goalie situations but before we do that and then wrap this up it's a tough spot for Don Sweeney Zidane Ochara is a franchise icon in Boston now and Sweeney mentioned that except he's older he's not the same player uh he's not going to kill you on the cap or anything like that uh but it's a question of can he still be of value to you when you know at some point here you're going to have to get younger i think he can i think there's leadership there that that can't be replaced necessarily i think char is a big big part of that and he's today's in such great shape but if Sweeney did want to walk away from Chara, it's a very hard thing to do. And I don't know that he can be, I don't know that he's able to do it. If Zidane Chara says he wants to play for the Bruins, which he has said, it's a real tough spot for Don Sweeney if he wants to move on from him. And then it's a tough spot for Bruce Cassidy if they do bring him back. And maybe, you know, do you, do you rest him? Do you scratch him? How does this all work with a franchise icon? Uh, it's a tough spot. It really is. You know what they need to do? They need to look a little to the south and a little to the west. To Foxborough. <laughs> Just let him go. <laughs> and make the decision and let him go. And, and if you're worried about the fan feedback and you're worried about the, the blowback from walking away from an icon, there's no bigger one than Tom Brady in Very New England. And, and the fans immediately walked away, especially when you bring Cam Newton in and now everybody's on the Cam Newton bandwagon and what was going to be a rebuild is going to be another playoff year. Like, I, I think you can't walk that line. If, if you believe as a management that he can no longer be part of what you are um, and his role has diminished greatly in, in yeah, the last couple of that, years. No he doesn't play not. power play it anymore. Um, he's basically a penalty killer, last minute of the game when you have a lead kind of guy. So, um, you know, if you think you can live without him, like you, you have to rip the Band-Aid off. That's a good good comparison. We'll see what the Bruins do. Uh, but we did, you know, real quickly here, want to do some other goalie stuff. I touched on it a lot on my uh, Over the Boards mailbag, which returned this week, Wednesday. Um, because it's not just, I mean, Tuka Rask and Yaroslav Halak going, you know, will be the Bruins goalies, but what are the Penguins going to do? What do they get for Matt Murray if they want to trade him? I wonder what the market right now is for a Matt Murray. It's not like he's been lighting it up the last few years. And how does that impact other markets? What about the Toronto Maple Leafs? If Matt Murray, like I, as I brought up in the mailbag, there's a connection between Murray and Kyle Dubas from Sault Ste. Marie, right? Well, I mean, if they want to go after Matt Murray, what do they do with 
Freddie Anderson, who's got one year left on his deal. And then you've got out West, you've got Minnesota. Devin Dubnik has got another year left. Alex Stalock has two years left, but Bill Guerin's not going to come back with that, that, that mix. He knows Matt Murray, but I think there's a lukewarm endorsement there. So there's a lot of fluid goaltending stuff that will be coming up here in the next month or so that's going to be very interesting. And the goaltending market in general, uh, as we head into free agency and whatever trades may be made, that's going to be the most fascinating for me because there's also the Colorado Avalanche, right? I mean, they had Michael Hutchinson playing in game six and game seven against Dallas. Fransu didn't look that great. Uh, Grubauer is good, but, you know, health issues there. Uh, do they make a change in goal to try to push themselves over the top? The goaltending market, Sean, is going to be fascinating. It is, and we haven't even talked about what's going to happen in Vancouver, right? Demko right. comes out, plays those games, and now all of a sudden, uh, again, you know, a fan base, some reporters, whatever element you want to talk about is, does this change the plan for the Canucks? Do they not sign Markstrom, who's a UFA, to be um, because Demko can be the number one? Uh, I don't think that's the case, and and neither does their GM, who came out and said, kind of important. <laughs> we're already trying to sign Markstrom. You know, maybe it changes the parameters of that deal if you think Demko can come, um, you know, quicker than than maybe you thought. And, and the other thing I think when you look at all this goalie stuff is GMs have to start thinking that maybe as important as that position is, it's not that important, right? The Dallas Stars are in the conference final with their backup. Ben Bishop has been on the shelf the whole time. Um, the Islanders are here with a tandem, right? A, a two pretty good goalies, but a tandem. Um, Vasilevsky was drafted and developed um, into an elite goalie. And then the same thing with Vegas, right? They got Robin Lehner at the trade deadline. Um, he's on a, a pretty fair deal for them, and he'll be a UFA. But I, I think especially with a flat, with a flat cap, you wonder if teams are going to try and spend less money on one position. And the one team, the one goalie move that's already happened that throws all of that out the window is Jake Allen being traded. And we talked right. about that on last week's podcast where the Canadians have all kinds of money, salary cap invested in their goaltending position now. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but it seems to me that when you look at the final four and the NHL being such a copycat league that I wonder if there are going to be some GMs who are going to be very hesitant about putting major portions of a flat cap into, into their net. Well, and, and you see, and, and to, to, we can close on this. I mean, you, you, you brought it up, right? I mean, the, the Canadians are pouring so much money into their goaltending, but they're doing it with what might be a tandem. Right. I mean, maybe less of a tandem because Carey Price will play more games than Jake Allen, but at least they have a good one B. And that's what you're seeing in these playoffs, which are different because the games are a little bit more condensed and you do have to there, there's a requirement, except obviously for the lightning so far uh, to use a second goalie. But I think teams are looking at that and at the Bruins model and how they're able to rest Rask, um, you know, during the regular season at, at key points in the regular season. You're going to look at its tandems in general and that will lead to less money being poured into number one goalies. And that's going to make it Markstrom, Lehner, Holtby, Crawford, uh, the top four UFA to be goalies. If they're going to become UFAs, I, I mean, I don't know any of them going to get exactly what they're looking for because now you're looking at tandems being a more popular thing. And in what you said, right, Sean is a copycat league. Yeah, and look, nobody knows what next year's going to, next season's going to look like. 
it could be a pretty condensed schedule. I think there's yeah, some absolutely. teams that are making decisions now based on the fact that they think that n- next year with, you know, a December start or possibly later is going to be jammed and you're going to need a second goalie. And, and that's where a team like Tampa Bay may pay a little bit of a price next year because they're not going to be able to ride Vasilevsky for three quarters of their games. And if there's a huge drop-off between your 1A and your 1B, you're going to run into bigger problems there. So, uh, again, you know, I think we've closed the last three podcasts the same way in that yeah. this short offseason is going to be bananas. It's going to be bananas. And then also, one last thing with the goalies – Seattle 2021 expansion draft. Yeah, I have to think about that too. But great episode here. Brian Compton, Ross Greenberg, our guests. Hope you enjoyed it. Sean, it was fun. Enjoy the games. Everybody stay safe out there.